Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. Today's presenter is Dr. Aaron Coe. His topic is Preparing My Family for Eternity. Father in heaven, we thank you once again that we can come back here to know about you. We thank you for the lovely lunch that we have and the fellowship. We thank you that we are able to make new friends. And we thank you for your message. So Father, today as we dive into your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit speak to us. As we open our hearts to you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in the human beings and the animal kingdom, um, we have this thing about survival. It's either you make it or you break it, and we have an innate desire to live long. We want to live long in our lives. And we'll find ways to live long. In fact, there was this researcher by the name of Daniel Butner of the National Geographic. In 2002, he traveled around the world and he found five places in the world where people live the longest. And these, place, these places are in Japan, Okinawa, Ikeria in Greece, Sardinia in Italy, Nicoya in Costa Rica, and Loma Linda in California. And what they found were these people, they were living more than 100. There's more people living more, more than 100 years old in that five places than anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else. And he went to this research and tried to find out why are they living longer? What is their secrets to longevity? And they found a few things. Those people who live there mainly live on a plant-based diet. There's very little or no alcohol at all and no caffeine, and they were always very active, very active. It's not uncommon to see a 99-year-old herding his sheep in Ikea in Greece. And uh, Dan Gluten documented that. It was uh, amazing. They want to live long. The desire for longevity. There's something unique to humans. Yes, every animal has a desire to survive, the fight and flight response. But we have a unique desire to want to live long. You know, Elon Musk, he created the SpaceX and to travel around out of space in Mars so that he could create a place where humans could survive outside of this world. Why did he do that? Let me tell you, I think he's recognizing that this world is not sustainable. The way that we are heading is not sustainable. But yet we have that innate nature to want to live long. In fact, in the, in the Egyptians believe that they, want to, they can live again and after life. They don't only want to live long, but they want to live for eternity. And they believe that they could live again after death. And this could only happen, that's what they believe, that if their body was preserved in a lifelike form, as we probably would know, it's mummies. And they were stored in the pyramids 
And because they have that desire, they believe in that, that if they preserve their body, they could live for eternity. And the same thing happened also to the emperor Qin Shi Huang. He was arguably one of the best known emperors in China. He became an emperor at the age of 38, and he was the first emperor to unify China. And it was undeniable that Qin Shi Huang was an extremely ruthless leader. But he also had the same desire. He wanted to live forever. So much so that he, he believed by creating this terracotta soldiers that he was able to bring them into the next life. And it was estimated there was about 8,000 terracotta soldiers, 130 chariots, with 520 horses and 150 cavalry horses. Why that desire of eternity? So unique to you and me, but yet not in the animal kingdom. Why? You know why? Because God put eternity in your hearts. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity in the hearts of His people. Eternity. Is it a myth? Or is it a fact? Change the one yearn for eternity, and so did the Egyptians. And through generations before and after, human beings have a unique of its kind with an innate yearning to live forever. The great walls of China still reminds us today the greatness of Emperor Qin Shi Huang. And then we can look back in history, some of the great world changes that have come and go. As we look into the landscape of history, famous world changes have come and gone, and whether you agree with Confucius or not, we acknowledge that he was a world changer. And whether you agree with Plato and his philosophy or Aristotle, they were great world changers. They were great shapers of history. And if you look at Chairman Mao Zedong and his little red book and his communist ideology, even those that most people in the West would not agree with his philosophy, but we certainly do recognize that he changed the thought processes, the pattern of millions of people in China and outside of China. Or when we think of Joseph Stalin, the way that he influenced Russia and the former Soviet Union, we can't help it but to recognize him as a world changer as well. And also Abraham Lincoln of the United States. Without Abraham Lincoln, the America today will be set back in so many ways of personal rights, liberalism, human dignity, and human freedom. Abraham Lincoln was a world changer. So Winston Churchill was a world changer too. He changed the face of history as Hitler's forces continued to move across Europe. It was his dog determination of Churchill and his speeches before the Parliament of England that preserved the Western civilization for democracy. We would agree that Sir Winston Churchill, he himself, was a world changer. But today, I'm going to bring you to the land of Israel. There was one person who is the greatest world changer of all, one who stands head and shoulders above the rest. It reminds me of a poem that was written about him 
And it goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in, in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or own a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany, accompany greatness. He has no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through a pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within my mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that had ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. James Allen Francis. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he a philosopher? Is he just a great man who happened to be born at that time and gave great philosophies and theories and laws? Who is he? Some people say that he was a madman. Some people say that he was a revolutionary. Yes, he was a revolutionary in the way that he changes the lives of people. But who is he? Who is Jesus? And that is the question. Our greatest philosophers talk about him. Our greatest historian wrote about him. Poets write about him as well. But who is he? Why can't we escape him? Who is Jesus? He is human, just like you and me. We know that when he was alive, he was thirsty. He thirsts like a human. And he hungers like a human. And he was tired too. And he has emotions like you and me. And we know that he, he wept too. When Lazarus, his great friend, died. He says that he is God. Is he? They wanted to kill him because he said that he was God. But who is he? You know, Jesus asked Peter, one of his disciples, who do you think I am? Other people say that you are John the Baptist. Some say that you are the prophet Elijah. Some say that you are just a prophet. But Jesus said to him, I don't care what other people say, but you, Peter, tell me who I am. And he said that you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have done well. You have passed your exams. You knew that I am the Son of God. But who put that in Peter's mind? It was God that put in his mind. But who is Jesus? Jesus thought that we are to forgive. He thought that it's not just your outward actions, but he judges by our inward 
intentions and thoughts. Jesus says that the Ten Commandments says that you shall not murder, but he says something. If you hate your brother without a cause, you have committed murder in your heart. The Bible says do not commit adultery, but he says that if you look at the woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus raises the platform of ethics above all planes that everyone has ever lived. But who is he? King David said that in in sin, my my mother conceived me. Jesus claims to forgive sin. Jesus says, out of the heart proceeds evil, murder, adulteries, theft, false witnesses, and blasphemies. And he's able to forgive sin. How would you explain Jesus? All the prophecies in the Bible pointed that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was not just a philosopher. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a messenger. He was not just a revolutionary. But who is he? He's divine. Today, we're going to jump into the Bible and see and point and explore who Jesus is. A life that's written before Jesus was born. And the Bible also predicted his manner of his death, his manner of his birth, and his betrayal. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says, Bethlehem out of you shall come forth to me, one to be the ruler in Israel, way before, before Jesus was born. But where was Joseph and Mary when Mary was pregnant? They were in Nazareth. And they were in Nazareth, and Nazareth is about 150 kilometers away from Bethlehem. My wife and I recently traveled to Jerusalem, and uh, it was a very amazing um, experience that we had, and we've been to Nazareth, and we've been to Bethlehem, and we traveled all the way up to the Sea of Galilee, and we walked where Jesus walked. And the repercussions, the, the influence of Jesus can be felt everywhere you go. You don't have to be in Israel, even now. And today, if you were to travel from Nazareth all the way down to Jerusalem, it would take probably about one and a half hours. But at that time, if you would be riding a donkey in Jesus' time, it would take you about five days. And um, the travel is, is not easy. It will be rough and narrow, and you've got to find your way around. And um, when Mary was there, and Mary was pregnant with Jesus, and if anyone at that time were to ask Mary and say, where are you going to... Where, where are you gonna, have the baby. Where, where, where's it going to be? Is it going to be... Na- Everyone was going to say, I'm going to have the baby in Nazareth. But the Bible says in Bethlehem, where Jesus is going to be born. How is that possible? But something happened. Nine months pregnant, riding on the donkey for five days. Would any woman do it? But the decree by Caesar Augustus brought Joseph and Mary on the donkey ride to Bethlehem, and that night, Jesus was born. Prophecy does not guess. Prophecy knows. 700 years in advance, Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And indeed, he was. And Mary arrived in Bethlehem exactly that night that Jesus was born. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, his, and shall call him, his name Emmanuel. Don't we see that in the book of Matthew as well? This is in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 14. And in Numbers, and um, who wrote Numbers? 
Moses. He wrote Numbers. He wrote the book of Numbers, and in Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a star did indeed would rise in the east and led the wise men to the very home of the Messiah. Way before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, predicted by the Bible, Jesus was born of a virgin, the Bible says that, and the wise man was guided to the Messiah's home by a star. And we know that star is an angel. Six, and Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. 680 BC that this was being written. To proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. He frees men and women from prison. Lust and greed and selfishness. Who is Jesus? Who is he that healed people? Who is he that healed the lame and make the dumb speak? Make the paralyzed, the paralytic who has been paralyzed for 33 years to walk. Who is he? Who is he who forgives people, forgives sin? Only God can forgive sin. Only the divine Son of God can forgive sin like that. When the adulterous woman was thrown before him, people were accusing him. Those who sinned cast the first stone, and no one did. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Jesus came to raise the dead. Jesus, who is he? Who is he? He raised Lazarus, who has been dead for four days from the grave. You know, at that time, the Pharisees believed that the soul will leave the body at three days. That's what they believed at that time. You know, for three days, you know, your, your, your soul will still be there. Jesus waited till the fourth day because he wanted to show something. He wanted to show them that he is divine, that he is God. He could have raised Lazarus on the second day. He could have raised Lazarus on the third day. But he raised Lazarus on the fourth day. He is the only one who could resurrect the dead. He healed, forgave. Now come with me now to the city of Jerusalem. On the Thursday evening, as Jesus was gathered around his disciples at his last supper, a prophecy was made 1,000 years in advance by King David that was fulfilled that very night. And what was that prophecy? In Psalms 41 verse 9, it reads, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he shared my bread, has lifted up, up his heel against me. Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. Judas, was Judas one of the 12 disciples? Yes. Was Judas, was Judas close to Jesus? Yes. Judas had been with Jesus everywhere and he had seen the works of Je Jesus and yet he betrayed him. And the Bible predicts 1,000 years before that his close friend whom he trusted that he shared bread with will lift up his heel against him. Zechariah in 11 verse 12, the Bible says, So they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver, at least 500 before Christ. This book was written. And take note of the, of the accuracy. How many pieces of silver? 30. It's not 25. It's not 20. It's not 40. But 30. 
How did the Bible know that in the days of Christ, 500 years after Zechariah, that the price of a slave would be 30 pieces of silver? 500 years ago, was the loaf of bread or rice the same price as it is today? No, absolutely not. What about the food? 500 years ago, is it the price of today? Was petrol the same as 30 years ago? No, it isn't. So how did the Bible know that Christ would not be sold for 30 or 40 or 20? But of gold, but it was a silver. Why was that the currency of, the, of that time? How did the Bible know that silver would be that currency? Jesus was no common man. And the Bible is no common book. Zechariah says in 11, verse 13, So I took 30 of pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the porter. 30 pieces of silver. The amount is precise. The result is precise. The place is precise. When he threw in Matthew 27, verse 5, he says, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to, to bury strangers in. The amount was 30 silver. The result was Jesus, Judas's conscience so badly that they condemned him and he threw the money on the temple floor. And then the priest used that money to buy the potter's field. And that was predicted 500 years before Christ. Christ is more than just an ethical leader. He is more than a religious philosopher. He is the divine son of God. The prophecies of the last 24 hours of his life came to a focal point in a place called Calvary. When Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he says in the Bible that he was exceedingly sorrowful, so much so that beads or perspiration of blood started to come up from his body, his skin. Is there such a thing? There is such a medical condition called hematohydrosis. Hemato is heme, heme is blood. Hydrosis is sweating. So hematohydrosis is a sweating of blood. And it is a very rare condition, but it comes only when someone is so stressful and so exceedingly sorrowful that your capillaries start to allow the blood to flow out of it. We see them in sepsis, people with having infection, the severe infection that all the, the biochemicals of interleukins, interferons, everything, the cytokines, open up the vascularity and allow the blood to flow through. When the weight of the sin of the world was upon him, he was exceedingly sorrowful that he experienced hematohydrosis. And he said three times, three times, Oh, Father, if it is possible, with God, is everything possible? Yes. And he says, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will. It was so sorrowful for him that he felt 
it's almost impossible to walk through this. As the weight of the sin, can you just imagine? Just imagine if you bear the burden of the sin of the person next to you, or your own sin, the guilt that you have in your life, I'm talking about the day you're born all the way until you are right now, what will your weight be? Then make it two people, make it three, make it a family, make it a community, make it a country, and the whole world. Those who are born and dead, those who are present, and those who are yet to be born. Exceedingly sorrowful. Isaiah 50 verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and splitting. 600 years before Christ. Watch as the crown of thorns is jammed upon his head. Watch as they put the rope over his head as they spin him around and slap him on his face and they mock him, spit upon him and cursed him. You know the crown of thorns? As we went to Israel, we, uh, we were traveling and uh, um, the, um, one of the, the, the local people in Israel said, stop the bus. And we're wondering what happened. And he literally just jumped off the bus and he went to pick up something I'm not sure what it is. And he came in and he actually literally had this plant that is the crown of thorns and they were sharp, really sharp and long. They were like this long and that thick. We tried to bend it, we couldn't. And we've got this lady, adventurous lady, so I'm going to try to put it on my head. And it was really, really painful and we held it in our hands. And that was real. That was unique to that in Israel. The crown of thorns on the head of Jesus. The soldiers took the Roman whip with leather embedded with metal and bone as they bound his hands and they took the whip and whipped his back, those pellets will stick on his back and they will retract it and pull part of the flesh out. And they'll do it again and again and again. Who is this who suffers so much? Who is this that's being mocked by Pilate's soldiers? Who is this that was sent from Herod the Pilate? Who is this who was treated like a common criminal? You know, there are three charges I know that was done against him. Number one, they say that this man, he loves sinners. He loves sinners. He likes to hang around with sinners. We're going to charge him. Number two, before I say number two, has Jesus sinned? If he has sinned, he will not be able to forgive us. He has never sinned. The second charge, he healed on the Sabbath. Who created the Sabbath? God. Doing good for people on Sabbath is the character of God. But the Pharisees were so entrenched in traditions that they accused him. You heal on the Sabbath. We're going to charge you. We're going to charge you. And number three, he says that he's one who is able to forgive, forgive sin. He claimed that he was divine, that he was the son of God. And when Jesus was brought to Pilate, Jesus asked him, are you the king of Jews? And he says, it is as you have said. Jesus told Pilate that I am not from this kingdom. That if at my command, there'll be thousands and ten thousands of angels will stop me from walking this road. 
But because of you and me, he decided to walk through this. Who is this sufferer that was nailed in his hands? Who is this who has a crown thorns upon his head? Who is this that's a mock? Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, betrayed, humiliated, and tortured. You know, King David, he wrote this. It was a prophecy. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divided my garments among them. As for my clothing, they cast lots. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent in Isaiah 53. You know, this is the chapter that the, the Pharisees and the Jews and, and the Jews today refuse to acknowledge. Who, how plain can this be that this person that, was talk, that King David was talking about is Jesus? How plain can it be? And Jesus' breath, his last breath, and it is finished. What is finished? His mission, as predicted by the Bible prophecy, is finished. His victory against Satan has been gained. It is finished. By his death, we are able to be forgiven. By his death, we are able to gain salvation. By his death, we can proclaim his name over our sins. By his death, we can find assurance that he indeed is the son of God. By his name, by his death, that we're able to proclaim eternity for our family. Jesus' resurrection testified of his truth. He testified of his assurance that he will come again. He will receive those who seek and choose those who abide in him. When was Jesus crucified? Which, which day of the week? On a Friday, just before sundown, he resurrected on which day? Sunday. Even through his death, Jesus kept the Sabbath. He rested on the Sabbath day. He preached in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In the book of Acts, the people preach on the Sabbath. Jesus will be coming. The Bible says that the coming of Jesus will be a visible event. The ascension was visible as much as his descent will be visible. The book of Revelation says that, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye. Is Jesus coming secretly to the chosen few? No, he's coming so that everybody will see him. It will be an audible event as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, that's audible, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ arrives. Those people who has proclaimed Jesus and accepted him and has died, when he come, they will rise up, and they will rise up along with Jesus, who will be, who will be meeting us in midair. And the Bible continues, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? 
in the air. Thus, we shall always be the Lord, be with the Lord. Notice the intimacy of this word. Notice that the words are saturated with love, that God wants to be with you. Christ's coming will be a glorious event. The real Christ is coming in the sky. And we know that the real Christ is coming to resurrect the dead. Matthew 24, verse 30, the Bible says, The Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. It is not only the believers who will see Him when He comes, but when Christ comes the second time, every eye will see Him. Every eye. Matthew again continues, said, They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus comes literally, visibly, audibly, ungloriously. Jesus' coming will be a climatic event. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 to 53, the Bible says, Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in the flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and will be changed. Jesus, the Son of God, will be coming. He will take His people along with Him. You know, um, we talk about the sorrows and the things of this world. Sometimes we see almost like there's no hope in life. But there is hope, there is courage, there's strength in Jesus. There will be two groups of people, two groups of people when He comes. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 to 17, the Bible says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the, great, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. You know, when we know about Jesus and we reject him, when he comes, when that evidence has come, people will say, I am so guilty. I have not given my life to him. And they were so ashamed that they will hide themselves. They will rather have the rocks fall on them than to see the glory of God coming through the clouds of heaven. For the great day of his wrath will come and who is able to stand. Luke 17, verse 26, as, the, as it was in the days of Noah, Noah was asking people to come into the boat. There were two classes of people, one that was saved and one was lost. You know the saddest thing? Was that Noah saved his family and no one wanted to come. People were in their drunkenness. They didn't want to come. They didn't believe. Even the evidences have been given to them again and again. Jesus says that there will be two classes of people, one who accepts him and one who rejects him. One safe and one lost. There is no second opportunity when the time comes. The time to get serious about your salvation is now. Right now. Brothers and sisters, who do you belong? Who do you belong? Do you belong to the one that accepts him? Or do you belong to the one that says, look, I'm not ready today. But what is God speaking to your heart? The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. And behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Our eternal destiny is being settled by the choices that we make today. I would like to invite Cleopas and Joshua to come up. They're going to have a special music for us this afternoon. As the special music began to play, I want you to think, what has God spoken to you today? I want you to meditate and say, who am I going to choose today? In the times of turbulent times where things are changing at such a fast pace, how do we prepare ourselves for eternity? How do we do so? What about the children? I was born in a family of no religion. Deep down inside my heart, I was seeking God. I went about my own ways to search for the truth. And I've come far and near. I've made mistakes in my life again and again. Wake up in the morning with no meaning in my life. I gave up on Christianity. I turned my head against God and I went to search for Islam, hoping there is some truth that will convict my heart and change my life. Because nothing in the world that I knew could fill that void. I got into medicine thinking that when I help people, it will fill that void. I try to excel in whatever I do. Graduated, saw the sufferings around the world, but that didn't stop me from going out and saying there's a hope that I can help these people. But deep down inside, I can't even help myself. How do I expect to help others? How? By God's divine intervention, when I stopped, I abided by the health message of what the Quran to say. I stopped eating pork. Someone came and showed me the scriptures. There is a group of Christians that believe in the Bible, in the health laws. He cares about your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health. I've never heard of such a thing. But when I knew, when I heard that, I knew inside my heart there was a divine truth that was placed in my heart and said, this is it. But it took me one and a half years before I set foot into that church. And when I finally did, God was to show me that preacher who stood up there was speaking about a sermon. Everything around me was empty. God was speaking directly to me and to my heart and said, come on to me. I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Today, I can tell you, 
every single word of my prayer have been answered. Every one of them. Some of them, not according to what I asked for, but God will give me something better. And He always have and He always will. Not only to me, but to you. But are you willing? Are you willing to give your life to Him today? I wake up every morning. I have a purpose. I know I can give my patient hope when there is no hope. When they come to me, they are downtrodden. When they want to kill themselves, they tell that life is no longer worth living. They're willing to abandon their children and say, my life is not worth living. I want to kill myself. But I give them hope. There is a purpose. If only you will receive. In 1794, July, in the dungeons of Paris, where men and women were lining up to be slaughtered by the guillotine. One night, a man came in. He was part of the line that's going to be, he's going to, he's going to be killed. As he looked around, all of a sudden, he saw something across that prison wall. Someone familiar. And he ran to him. And true enough, before him was his son. His son was sleeping. Something burned inside of his heart and said, I've got to save my son. I've got to save him. But how? What do I do? How do I save this boy from this ordeal? Something flashed on his mind. I got an idea. When they call for him, I will stand up. I will say that I'm him. He sat by his son the whole night. That morning, the guards came and called out his name. He stood up. He said, John, Sabon? Yes, sir, it's me. 37 years of age? No, he was 73. Oh, it's our mistake. Come. That day, he lost his life. The next morning, his son woke up, wondering why he didn't call his name. Why didn't they call my name? He waited and waited until someone came and said, last night, there was an old man who sat by you. He took your place and he died. Three days later, the ringleader Robespierre, the terror, fell into the guillotine himself. And he, the young man, was safe. It reminds me of our Savior Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who do you say he is? He will save you. He will take you as you are. No matter what you have done in your life, no matter what you have done, Moses. He's a murderer, and God saved him. Saul was a murderer, and God saved him. And the adulterer that came before Jesus, and Jesus saved her. He's willing to die 
and take your place and my place at the cross of Calvary, are you willing? Are you willing to give your life to Him today? He longs to save you. If you would have Him today, how would you respond? Every head's bowed and every eye's closed. And today, if God is speaking to you in a powerful way and you want to accept Him as your Savior, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. And today, if you have heard about the grace of God and the love of Jesus for you, and you feel that there's so many things in the world that it's burdening you, but you know that God can take all this away and you want to commit your life and say, Jesus, take my problems away. I invite you to raise your hand, your right hand. Amen. And if you have accepted, want accept Jesus in your life and say that you want to commit your life through baptism at some point in your life, you want to study more about the Bible, but you want to commit yourself to Him, I urge you to raise your hand. For those who have once deviated from Jesus, that once you have forsaken Him, and now that you have seen His love working in your life, that He has spoken to you in a very powerful way you couldn't quite comprehend, but your heart is pounding, and you say, God, take me. I want to recommit myself to you again through baptism. I urge you to raise your hand with me. You have made your decision today. And God of heaven, knows your heart and your desire. I'd like to pray with you to seal the decision you have made today. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a wonderful God that we have and what sacrifices you have made in our lives. There may be things in our lives that we may not comprehend. There are things in our life that is too much to bear. Oh, we know one thing, that Jesus has bared it all. He has been through there. Father, you have washed the hands that have been raised, the hearts that have been committed to you. There are some who have been wrestling with you right now in their hearts and they do not know what to do. Father, I pray that you speak to them in a very powerful way, in a very special way, as they seek you earnestly and pray to you. And Lord, I pray, that you will show yourself to them in the very powerful ways they trust in you, Lord. As we reflect on the Calvary, we see Jesus, who has not sinned and yet died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to our hearts today. And may we seal our decisions today for ourselves and our family, that we may one day see the glorious day of Jesus coming through the clouds of heaven and we are raised up to meet Him and rejoice. What a wonderful day that will be. Father, we thank You and we commit these souls onto Your hand today as they have made their decisions for You. But we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
message was made available by Beyond Patmos. For more resources like this, visit beyondpatmos.org. song of peace from the toils that bind me it will bring release burdens will be lifted that are pressing so showers of great blessing or my heart will flow sing to sing me to of heaven let me fondly dream of its golden glory of its pearly Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sweetest song of all. Sing to me of heaven as I walk alone, dreaming of the comrades that so long have gone. In a fairer region among the angel throng, they are happy as they sing that old sweet song. Sing to sing me to of heaven, let me finally dream of its golden, of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to sing me to when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to sing me to of heaven, sweetest song of all. Sing to me of heaven tenderly and low Till the shadows o'er me rise and swiftly go When my heart is weary, when the day is long Sing to me of heaven, sing that old sweet song Sing to me of heaven, let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. Sing to me when shadows of the evening fall. Sing to me of heaven, sweetest song of all.
hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lynchjourney.com. The French Reformation in the 16th century was not a smooth sailing. There was strong tension and conflict between the Protestants and Catholics, and in the latter part of the century, there were several wars between the two. In the 1530s, there was growing frustration as they saw their dream being fulfilled elsewhere in Germany and Switzerland. And yet in France, they were lagging behind. In order to advance their cause, it was thought they needed to strike a bold blow to Rome and attack one of the most controversial topics, the mass. A tract was written. Many believe that Farrell wrote it in Switzerland, though others say that Antoine de Marcourt wrote it. The tract was entitled, True Articles on the Horrible, Great and Intolerable Abuses of the Popish Mass, invented in direct opposition to the Holy Supper of our Lord and only mediator and savior. The leaders of the French movement met to discuss how to use it, and some felt it was too strong and direct, and that to use it would cause more harm than good. Others thought that it was okay, and when it was taken to a vote, it was decided to use it. They were distributed all over France, to every city, town, and even villages. And it was decided that on October the 24th, 1534, at night, they would be posted all over France. However, instead of advancing the Reformation, this zealous and ultimately ill-judged action brought ruin, not only on those who had posted the placards, but on the Reformed or Protestant faith throughout France. One of the placards was posted on the king's personal chamber, and in his rage he said, let all be seized without distinction who are suspected of heresy, and I will exterminate all. The leaders of the Roman church had what they had longed for, a reason to wipe out the Protestants. Some poor adherent of the reformed faith was seized and commanded to show the papers all the homes of the believers in Paris, and under the threat of death, he cowardly went along and betrayed his people. They walked through the streets of Paris and grabbed people from their homes, imprisoning them before trying, torturing, and killing them. Hundreds of people fled Paris, people from all ranks of life. University professors, princes, artisans, and the Catholic Church were surprised to find how many Protestants had been living in Paris unknown to themselves. The leading French reformers would have to leave, finding refuge in Geneva, Switzerland, and it was from there that they would send pastors back into France so that in the space of 40 years, there were perhaps 2 million Huguenot Protestants and 1,250 churches throughout France. St. Bartholomew's massacre would deal another blow to the church in France, and again, many people would leave France. At this persecution and subsequent ones that would follow, each time France would lose their skilled tradesmen and craftsmen, suffering a brain drain that they had caused on themselves. The Swiss watchmaking industry was built largely by French Huguenot Protestants who fled there. 
One thing that we learned from this episode of history is that it's as important that we know when to say something and how to say something as it is that we say the right thing. Simply speaking the truth is not enough. The placards that were posted might have contained the truth about the mass and correctly pointed out the erroneous beliefs, but the way in which it was done was ill-judged and caused more harm than good. May we be wise in how we share the truth of God's word, sensitive to what others believe and always aim to be winsome in our methods and our words. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABNAustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.